Thank you for joining another edition of the InsuranceAUM.com podcast. My name is Stuart Foley. I'm your host. And today we're going to be talking about infrastructure and insurers with Nick Coxon, Tom Danielson, and Mark Mercurio from Macquarie. Gentlemen, thanks for being on. Thank you. Thanks, Jeff. First things first, we've changed our questions. Here it comes. There's three of you. It's got to be rapid fire. Mark, I'm starting with you. Hometown, first job, fun fact. Ready? Go. Cohasset, Massachusetts, uh, mowing lawns, and uh, played college lacrosse. There you go. All right, Nick. So Farnborough in the UK. What was the second question? First, first job. job. First job. Oh, I've barely done a job. First job. Um, <laughs> I, would been, I would have worked at a software company in the summer after school. And then my fun fact is not that much fun. I support Crystal Palace Football Club in the UK. That, that's not very fun. No, at this is, all right. Tom, what, how about you? So hometown Chatham in the UK. My first job was actually as a ski instructor in the UK, which is unusual. And then my fun fact is my middle name is the name of a female elf in the Lord of the Rings. And that is? <laughs> you, can't, you can't throw that out there without saying what it is. It's Arwen, which is one of the elves, I believe. I think by chance rather than design. Yes, to my, my parents' defense. <laughs> See, I think I think this is a good start. Now we know each other a little bit. Um, just for the sake of our audience, can you tell can you tell our audience, Nick, Tom, and Mark, your roles at Macquarie? Sure, shall I start? So I've been Macquarie for twelve years. My role here in 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 the New York office is I I um, help manage all of our real assets, capital raisings, and I'm particularly focused on infrastructure equity. My role is to lead the fundraising for private credit in the Americas, and my background is I'm a qualified actuary since 2015. Stuart, this is Mark. I've been in Macquarie for four years now, and I, I work on investment solutions for both North American and Bermuda general account investors. That's fantastic. So this is my thing, right? I... I'm genuinely curious about infrastructure because you hear a lot about it, and yet I'm not clear on the definition, and I'm not sure everybody is talking about it in the same way. So, Nick, just to start with you, I hear the term infra thrown around a lot. How do you define it as an asset class? So I think it is thrown around a lot, firstly, Stuart. I think if we were at a dinner party talking about infrastructure, not that we necessarily would be talking about infrastructure at a dinner party, but it would mean something different than what we think it means in an investment context. And I think what it means to me, and, and Tom, please feel free to jump in as well, but I think what it means to me is assets, businesses that are essential to communities that they operate in. They provide a service that is essential. Um, they are typically, therefore, long-lived. They have very few substitutes. And as a result of all of that, they typically have performance, as we think about investing in them, that is very stable and very predictable. Now, that can encompass a whole range of different things. I'm sure we'll get on to talking about specifics of what it actually is that people like us invest in. But I, I would say those are the attributes that we look for. And helpfully, as I'm sure we'll also get, get to, those attributes also from an investment perspective mean lots of other things that we think are attractive for institutions. And I think it's fair to say that infrastructure is a core competency of Macquarie, right? So you've been in this space a long time. How has that asset class changed over time 
or has it changed over time? Well, in one sense, it hasn't changed because the investment merits and the attributes that I just described haven't really changed. And frankly, many of the transactions we invest in today since we started doing this you know, 25 years ago haven't really changed, haven't really changed. What has changed in some cases is within some sectors as things like technology have changed, so is the opportunity set. So let me give the example of renewables. We're sitting here 30 years ago. The idea of investing in a wind farm, particularly a wind farm offshore, would have been kind of futuristic activity, and it wouldn't have been investable necessarily as infrastructure. And frankly, we were investing at the forefront of these sorts of sectors um, you know, 20 odd years ago. And we were doing so often with support from governmental regimes or other measures that would underpin your, your economics and the stability and predictability that I just described. And um, today, that asset class looks very, very different. You know, very clearly, you know, investing in a, a wind farm is the sort of corest of the core infrastructure that you could you could invest in. And um, but other than those sorts of technical changes, I would say the asset classes remain pretty pretty stable in terms of what it's offering. Yeah, I would I would sort of add to that, and I think you did a great job of outlining sort of what encompasses infrastructure. I, I tend to think of it as, as actually a few of the things that you mentioned. You know, the top long lived, asset intensive, monopolistic in its in its features and more about that than a sort of line item list of, you know, solar or wind and the whole sort of sort of bag of things. And specifically toward private debt, I think the debt story is sort of somewhat different and, and perhaps a little bit laggard um, than what we've seen in the equity space. And the reason for that is the vast majority of financing to these projects was done by banks prior to the financial crisis. And there's been a big shift post the GFC. The asset class has become a bit more friendly and attractive to institutions. And today we see a much, much bigger role for insurance companies providing that capital to the projects. And so I hear about this so-called infra bill. And I, based on the notes that I have, formally called Investment and Jobs Act of 2021, what is it? Can you summarize it? And how do you think it's going to affect the investable universe for insurers in particular? Why don't I try and do that from an equity perspective? And Tom, I'm sure, will jump in from a, a credit perspective as well. I mean, essentially, what we've seen in the last couple of years with the Biden administration is a really concerted push around what has been badged the investment and the infrastructure investment and jobs act um, as you described this year and essentially what is this a reaction to it's a reaction to the fact that for the last really kind of 20 odd years um the u.s political landscape has been discussing infrastructure as a topic and to be honest as a bit of an outsider to the politics of this country at least until recently moving here it seems to be one of the only things that the parties can really agree on that the infrastructure in this country yeah compared to many developed markets uh, and not in all cases in, in all states but but as a generalization needs investment and the question is how we deliver that investment for society um, and what this bill does is essentially appropriate federal money to help do that. I should say, not all of what that bill does is pure infrastructure in our minds. There's clearly a lot of, if you like, stimulus capital in, in that bill. But it is a helpful, I would say, a helpful starting point. We clearly welcome what's been going on in, in that political arena around this bill. And it will create a whole amount of government investment in sectors, both you know, federally and through the states and local governments who still own an awful lot of infrastructure. Will it dramatically change the opportunity set I actually don't think it necessarily will. And the reason for that is the opportunity set is strong without government stimulus money or government investment money into infrastructure. The funding need 
in US infrastructure and frankly global infrastructure, the US isn't alone, is enormous. The role that private capital can play in that is also enormous. While it is true that allocations to infrastructure have been growing, they are far outmatched by that gap, if you like, that funding gap. And just as a point of fact, when we think about our US business and how we've invested our capital, uh, and you're right, Stuart, we've been doing this a very long time, as we've been investing in that capital, most of the transactions we've done have been entirely private to private. I, we aren't reliant on government as a source of deal flow. So I don't massively see that changing. And um, I hope, and I think we all hope, who are investors in private infrastructure, in addition to this, if you like, governmental support for that important investment, there'll also be measures taken to incentivize you know, further private ownership of infrastructure. It's something that we've seen around the world, whether that's in Australia, across Europe, frankly, lots of parts of the world. And I think the sort of logic of some of those measures would apply equally here in the US. Those would be my reflections. Yeah, and, and, I, and I would probably just, and I think you're right, that, that the role of private finance is, is going to be you know, huge for the, for the sector in general. I think to put some numbers behind all of that, there's a, there's a really interesting report by McKinsey, which talks to this kind of global need for infrastructure as we, as we grow. And actually, the annual figure is something like $4 trillion per annum up until 2030. It's an enormous amount. And that actually excludes any newer technologies. It also excludes the UN sustainability goals. And if you add those numbers back in, it's an additional trillion dollars per annum. So what is clear is that the opportunity set is vast. It's continuing to get bigger as, as countries develop. What I would just add from a debt perspective is that typically because of all of the features that Nick mentioned regarding infrastructure, the stability, they tend to be largely debt financed. So we actually see a really big role for the provision of debt financing as part of those projects. So a couple of things. From an insurer's perspective, they have an odd problem, right? The faster that they grow their top line, their gross rate and premium, the faster money flows through to the investment portfolio, the faster they have to invest it. And it's not a small problem. I mean, they've got money coming in over the transom and they need a place to go that offers value Right. And the market. And again, I mean, I'm hearing that from you for the first time. It sounds to me that there is a lot of capacity for investment. And it sounds like you're not going to have a supply constraint in the current environment. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but is that a fair assessment? Absolutely. And um, perhaps to sort of, you know, look at a case study, I think one only has to look at the role of traditional private credit. So mid-market direct lending as a, you know, we're sort of looking into the future when we look at the provision of, of mid-market loans and the adoption that we've seen in the insurance industry. The way I would sort of phrase it, and, and we know that the opportunity set is big, but it has also posed some challenges for insurance to get, ac to get access. And the reason for that is these are private negotiated transactions. They typically require big capital amounts. And therefore, the adoption has been slower and not faster. And we think that will start to change, but it's not been as quick as one might expect. So, Mark, if I'm an insurer and I want to get access to this asset class, what are my options? Yeah, that's a great question, Stuart. Maybe I can start with why insurers do, when they allocate to infrastructure, gravitate towards the asset class. So, as Nick mentioned, typically infrastructure is a sector of primarily long-lived assets, which 
helps insurers match their investment profile to their longer dated liabilities. Another reason we see insurers allocate to the asset class is its diversifying properties. So we mentioned the essentiality of these services, of these businesses, and that typically results in a superior level of capital preservation and lower asset class volatility, as well as downside protection in periods of market stress. We've seen this play out in many investment regimes over the last two decades, whether it be the great financial crisis, the COVID crisis of 2020, or even Q1 of 2022, where there's a drawdown in the public equity markets. And this asset class historically provides a bit of a buffer to that downside. A third reason we see insurers look at the asset class is the high levels of income or cash flow associated with these businesses. So whether you're investing in the debt or the equity, again, because of the essential service nature of these businesses with high barriers of entry, low demand elasticity and pricing power, you tend to get higher levels of cash flow. And whether that comes back to the investors in the form of dividend yield, cash from operations or, or higher debt coupons. Okay, that helps. The thing that I'm looking at daily, sometimes multiple times a day is inflation print, right? How does this asset class perform with this kind of inflation, given that inflation is a double-edged sword for insurers? Yeah, so Stuart, these are businesses that either implicitly or contractually have the ability to pass on higher costs to, in what many cases, are captive customers. And that results in an asset class that historically has outperformed both equities and fixed income in periods of both rising inflation and above average inflation. And so just generally speaking, and I guess, Tom, this is more for you, when you look at infra debt, we're talking about long duration, income producing, fixed income securities. Is it 10 year, 20 year, 30 year? What kind of structures are you typically seeing in infrastructure deals on the debt side? The short answer to that is you, you sort of see a bit of everything, but perhaps I can sort of elaborate and, and talk a bit about what's what's most interesting. I think one of the areas that sort of actually perhaps surprised me when I moved to the to, to the US was in my head, long duration, everybody needs to be in, you know, the 30, 40 year part of the, the curve to make any sense. And, and and actually that is not really true. And the reason for that is that market exists pretty well. You know, there's a big US private placements market in, in, in the US. And actually, it means that there's quite a lot of efficiency in the transactions getting done. If you contrast and compare that with what you see in the kind of up to 10 or up to 12 year space, where borrowers have you know, maybe more limited access to capital, there might be some more complexity. What we've found is actually when you run that through an ALM model with insurance companies and you look at the regulatory capital treatment, it makes a ton of sense to actually prefer the shorter rather than the longer duration. That's not saying that the assets are any, you know, less well lived or, but it just means the risk profile of what you're trying to do looks a little bit different. I think the big thing wrapping all of that, and I've sort of touched upon it a little bit, but perhaps to sort of take it head on now is yield's really important, but for insurance companies, you know, yield per unit of capital consumed is actually far more important. And I think one of the big trends we've seen, you know, in an industry as, as a whole is that capital efficiency and structures that allow both big and small to get access to these pools of um, pools of investments is really, really important. And that's something we see as a continuing theme. Yeah. And I mean, and it kind of leads me into this next discussion and I, is the regulatory considerations, right? You know, everybody says, oh, insurance companies are all different. That's true. But 
they all face a regulatory regime and they've all got to deal with yield per unit of capital used. I mean, I like the I like that metric, right? From an NAIC perspective or a regulatory perspective, how is infra treated? You know, what's the latest on infrastructure from a regulatory perspective? So I'll start with the debt and maybe I can touch upon the equity. I think from a debt perspective, it's a little bit more unhappily, a more simple, um, simple equation um, than what Nick faces. As you've mentioned, Stuart, the fact that you have these yield generating assets that are effectively bonds or loans, although they might be in a more liquid form, means that they're quite easy to package up into what people call collateralized fund obligations or more commonly sort of rated notes. And that means you can go to a big rating agency and get part of that structure rated, and then it can fall part of insurance uh, Schedule D treatment. So that's sort of the most sort of simple form. And and, and what I would say on that, and and perhaps Mark can comment too, is that has seen wide adoption in industry at whole. And I think one of the big attractions for that is that, you know, big or small, people can access these structures now. And that just wasn't the case five years ago. Yeah, that's a great point, Stuart, which is, you know, these small and mid-sized insurance companies have really been at a disadvantage historically with the ability to access this asset class. And I think some of these new structures really open the doors to even the playing field for some of these smaller organizations that, you know, they see what the big guys are doing and they say, how can I replicate that without having to allocate, you know, $250 million to a specific asset class? So it really is an innovation in the market. and It's not specific to infra, but it certainly helps even the playing field, we think. Yeah, in my prior life, I was the CIO of a $100 million insurance company in central Missouri. And that is always an issue, right? The giant firms always have access to asset classes and having a smaller firm, you know, it's a competitive disadvantage to be smaller if you can't get access to those things. So it's good to hear that there's options available for folks who aren't, you know, bulge bracket portfolios. I mean, We've talked about several aspects of this market. It brings me to the topic we always have to bring up, which is risk. Where do you think the risk is in the sector kind of broadly today? I can't figure out that one. So I think, um, and Tom should talk about, about credit because risk is arguably the most important thing <laughs> in, in a credit portfolio. But I think, um, I mean, in essence, the risks that you face in infrastructure as an asset class are very different than those that you face from pretty much any other type of business. You're not exposed to competitive risk often because of the nature of these businesses being sort of natural monopolies or otherwise very well situated businesses. Um, you're not exposed often to market risk or even often GDP risk, although things like transport investments where you're owning, for example, an airport, you're clearly exposed to, to passengers, numbers and all those, all those good things. And so the risk that you really face in, in infrastructure assets is, is political, is regulatory, and is stakeholder risk. And that's why for, you know, we haven't talked much about ourselves and our, our business and how we organize ourselves. One of the key things that we find in investing in this asset class is it is a very intensive activity. While these are stable and predictable investments, even on the equity side, it is really important to note that they are real businesses. They require intensive management. They require risk management. They require stakeholder engagement. And we have to be able to prove every day in the market that we have a license to operate. And I'm sure we'll come on to it, but that goes to how we think about ESG and how we think about managing our portfolio. And I say all that because implicit in what I'm saying is if you get that stuff wrong, that's where your investment can really you know, fall into issues. And I think it also, yeah, as we think about acquiring new businesses and, and designing business plans around 
acquisitions we might make, I'm talking about on the equity side. Obviously, a really important question here is how we devise that investment profile, i.e., what are the assumptions we're making about the future? And generally speaking, in infrastructure, the aim of the game is for us to be conservative, such that if lots and lots of things go wrong, if we run a cumulative downside on our investment case, are we still getting our money back and a small positive return? That's the asset test for us on the equity side. So it is very different, even though the mindset is quite similar to you know, private equity buyout in some respects. It's very different from a risk perspective, I would say. I should perhaps sort of with my debt hat on be a bit negative, sort of be, be apt, wouldn't it? Um, I think for me, Stuart, the biggest downside, and maybe a bit of context first, is the performance of infrastructure assets over the past couple of decades has been very, very strong. In fact, very, very, you know, exceedingly strong relative to sort of corporate comparables. And what I really mean by that is very low default rates and very, very high recovery defaults. So if, if things go wrong, actually investors have tended to get their money back. So I would say sort of the biggest risk is sort of complacency in that context. And what I really mean by that is people sort of begin to chase much higher returns or people start chasing things or structures that don't work or assets that aren't really infrastructure or have some infrastructure characteristics but really don't sort of have any of the, any of the key things that the Nick mentioned at the, at the top of the call. So that is, that is probably the biggest risk, I think, is, is probably a, a kind of scope creep over time um, in the credit space. And, and, and the reason I say all this, of course, is in credit, there is only downside risk, right? You can, the best we can do is actually give clients the, the sort of stated level of return. And so I want to shift gears a little bit. You know, Nick mentioned ESG. It has been said that there may be up to 90 trillion with a T required to decarbonize and build new green infrastructure. To put that in context, the total, according to Statista, total insurance invested assets globally, which is about 30 cents of every dollar, comes in at around 35 trillion. So you think about the scale of that number. Can you help our audience understand this capital outlay and how anybody comes up with that number? And does that create market opportunities? So I can certainly try and paint a picture of the scale of the opportunity. But I think the short answer to your question, Stuart, is yes, we think it creates enormous opportunity. I mean, the energy transition, just taking a step back, is, is obviously not just what we think it really is a compelling investment opportunity. It's also a social imperative, and, and there will be required enormous amounts of investment over a long period of time to drive that transition. It is worth saying, the energy transition is not a new thing. It's been underway for a, a long period of time. I talked earlier about wind and solar. We think of those technologies as being mature technologies. They're critically important to um, greening the grid. But our reflection is also that they are quite mature from an investment perspective today. When we think about, as I say, equity investing in, in those sectors, some really attractive businesses, but a very mature sector. And as we think about the future, and I haven't got the chart in front of me, but, but people will have seen them, I'm sure. You look at the opportunity in the next 25 years, and actually the near term, the next 10 years, five to 10 years, much of the opportunity for investment in energy transition is actually not in that traditional in mature space, albeit that's very important, but actually in the, the nascent, the more nascent areas of opportunity which are not new from a technology perspective. So I'm thinking about things like electric vehicles and charging infrastructure. I'm thinking about things like hydrogen and so on, where there are you know, real technologies that are scalable. They're just not yet at scale. And one of the key opportunity sets, therefore, that we see is, is to actually invest in those thematics. 
and to be a part not just of the transition, but also of that investment opportunity. And the scale there is, is enormous and it's across the world. Maybe the final point to make on that is, yeah, we are talking here, I guess, about the US, but that opportunity is global and it's in largely developed markets, but of course it's also in developing markets. I think as we think about this, if we're having this conversation in 20 years time, you know, when we think about the transition, Firstly, hopefully we've made an awful lot of progress as a global community on that transition. But secondly, I think we'll be looking at these opportunities that today feel more nascent and thinking that they are the chorus of the core infrastructure because they'll be a feature of our energy networks and our, and our societies. The other thing, Nick, just think it's fair to say that if we have this conversation 20 years ago, I hope I'm still alive <laughs> to, to be a part of it. So, Tom, regarding debt, Traditionally, a lot of these loans were for midstream and power assets. Where do you see the market opportunities going forward from here? So I think as, as Nick was mentioning, there is certainly a role for these sort of more nascent transitional sort of technologies, things like battery storage, carbon capture, or even hydrogen. I also think it's sort of important to just be cognizant of the fact that even things like natural gas will sort of form part of that transition. You know, it is the case today that, you know, you couldn't just flip the US grid to a fully sort of renewable sort of production. So in the context of the debt, we do still see some opportunities in that space. Actually, in the midstream and power space, what we would expect to see and what we do see is a much bigger opportunity going forward to provide things like offshore wind or more distributed type solar. So in summary, the landscape is changing somewhat and the converse of that of course is that sometimes there is very attractive pricing in some of those less loved sectors so it's important i think to be you know aware of the risks understand the sort of investment thesis and build a portfolio of good assets around that thanks tom and just to just to wrap up i mean if, if i said hey what is the takeaway for our audience from each of you starting with nick on the equity side and moving to tom and then mark what's your key takeaway for today I'll try and be really brief because I'm sure we could talk about this for a while. But my summary would be the opportunity infrastructure equity is enormous. It's growing. And the opportunity is to invest in assets which are stable, predictable, essential to communities, and hopefully to drive some positive outcomes for society in so doing. My big takeaway and message is that capital efficient structures do exist. They are now available for all. And this is not just an asset class for the biggest and I think my takeaway, Stuart, would be this is an asset class that provides good volatility characteristics from a surplus perspective. It helps insurers think about their ALM and provides high levels of income as well. I really appreciate it. That's a great wrap up. Mark Mercurio, Nick Coxon, and Tom Danielson from Macquarie. Guys, thanks for being on. Thank you, Stuart. Thank you. Thanks, Stuart. Cheers. Please, uh, thanks for listening. Please uh, save the date for our event in late September, September 27th and September 28th. My name is Stuart Foley, and this is the insuranceaum.com podcast.